Today on Fuzzy Logic, we're talking rat brain transfer, Alzheimer's, and working with robots. And we're also going to be looking at 3D printing of ears. All that on more coming up for your science on a Sunday here on Fuzzy Logic. Good morning, Canberra, and welcome to Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday, here on X Community Radio, 98.3 FM in Canberra and surrounds. Thanks very much to Irish Voice for the show beforehand, uh, but now we've moved out of Ireland, and uh, we're going to be talking in the world of science. And to help me do that today, well, my name's Broderick, I should introduce myself first, um, and to help me do that today, uh, I've got a few people joining me in the studio. First of all, it's a big welcome back to Dan. G'day, Dan. Morning, Broderick. How you doing? Good. Good. You had enough fun last time that you're, uh, you're, you're willing to put yourself up to the fuzzy test again? Oh, de- oh, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Got some good feedback from last time. So I thought, yeah, let's give it another shot. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, it's fantastic to have you back, mate. And uh, joining us in the studio today, uh, we've got a couple of lovely ladies making their fuzzy debut uh, sitting to the right of Dan, we've got Phoebe. Morning, Phoebe. Good morning, Brad. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. I'm going well. And also in the studio is Jess. How are you? Good morning, Brad. Nice to see you. Yeah. Now, you two had a, a very interesting evening last night. Uh, what, do you want to tell us what you did? We uh, dressed up as astronauts and walked around Questacon taking photos and terrorising small children. We did. <laughs> it was good fun. <laughs> and you did the moonwalk as well? Uh, we did, and some slow motion folk dancing. It was oh, very cool. fantastic. Look, the fun you can have in an astronaut suit. <laughs> very true. That's great. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get straight into it today. Um, today is the 3rd of March, and uh, on this day in history, we've got a few interesting things. In uh, 1703, we actually uh, commemorate the death of English physicist Robert Hooke. Uh, who discovered the law of elasticity, which is now known as Hooke's Law, um, which is F equals KX for those playing at home, um, where F is the force, X is the amount the string is stretched, and K is a constant, because K is for constant. Uh, Hooke also invented the balance spring for clocks and uh, a whole lot of other measuring instruments, improving uh, the barometer, the anemometer, the hygrometer. In fact, the the biography of his life is called uh, The Man Who Measured London, Robert Hooke, A Man Who Loved Measuring. Awesome. Also on this day in 1847 is the birth of Scottish-American inventor Alexander Graham Bell, who was, of course, the inventor of the telephone. Um, Bell's career was actually hugely influenced by his grandfather, who published books called The Practical Elocutionist and Stammering and Other Impediments of Speech, and his father, who had an interesting interest in mechanics and the methods of vocal communication, and finally his mother, who was deaf. So all this kind of put together um, meant that uh, Bell did some really interesting science. Uh, he began giving an instruction at the age of... Uh, 23, 24, sorry, uh, when he was de- delivering a lecture on visible speech at the Boston School for Deaf Mutes. Uh, and this set in uh, course the development of the transmission of voice over wires, which eventually became the Bell Telephone Company. Uh, now, interesting fact here do you know what Alexander Graham Bell originally wanted to answer the telephone with? Ahoy, hoy. He did, that's right. And it was, um, but it was hello that ended up being stuck. Do you know who wanted hello? No, sorry. Now, another famous scientist, Edison. Edison oh. decided that hello was much clearer and much more uh, e- easy to be heard over the phone, so hello stuck um, due to Edison. And now that's used in about 30 to 40 different languages. They say hello when they answer the phone. Unless you're Mr. Burns, he still says ahoy hoy. That's right. Well, I, look, I feel like he would have been friends with Alexander Graham Bell. He is <laughs> that old. Um, he was probably around then. <laughs> In the cartoon world. Um, Also on this day in 2005, uh, the first solo non-stop and fastest flight around the world without refuelling ended uh, when Steve Fossett landed at uh, the airport in Kansas. He actually went around the world in 67 hours non-stop. Wow. Which is uh, pretty awesome uh, and would be pretty intense if you're a solo fire going for that long. He did it in a single-engine, single-use experimental jet plane. 
Um, interestingly, the first uh, non-stop two-person flight around the world was made in 1986, yeah, but that one took nine days to do it without mm. refuelling. Amazing how they could get that far without refuelling over nine days. Yeah. Anyway... That's the interesting things that have happened on this day in science, but much more interesting is the science that's happening in the world today. And uh, this week we've had some really interesting stories come out. And one of my favourite stories has been the idea of communicating telepathically, so to speak. And it's uh, come one step closer this week, Dan. Yeah, yeah, it has. Um, If you think about any sci-fi movie that you've seen where they you know put the big stainless steel bowl on their heads and transfer information via electricity um it's actually started happening and they don't even have to be in close quarters with each other um some research scientists um based in brazil have communicated using rats with um other research scientists in north carolina in the states and so what they've done is they've implanted a chip in the rat's brain taught the rat a um to respond to a, to a light flicker to get some food, and then they've transferred that via the internet connection to North Carolina, where the same rat, the, the rat in North Carolina, will actually, when it gets a stimulus, will, will react for the food to the same switch. Right, so the, the, light in one, the, sorry, the rat in one town is seeing the light and the other rat in the other town is reacting. Yeah, that's right. So they call them encoders versus decoder rats. So the encoder rat gets trained to react to the light to get the, to get okay. the response. Um, and then the decoder rat, which is in North Carolina, gets the signal and it automatically goes for the right switch. It's amazing. Yeah, amazing. yeah, and just just using internet connection, nothing fancy, you know. Right, so they've almost got like a modem inside their brain. No, that- no, no. So the the chip sends the signals from the inner cortex, yeah, and it sends it to the computer, and the computer transfers it via the internet ah. to the next computer, and it spits it back out into the other rat's brain, and the rat goes, "Oh, yep, right, right, switch, click," and gets the food. Crazy. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Can you imagine? You know, all those all those monster movies that you watch. It's actually going to be happening very shortly. It's quite scary. <laughs> do, do they think how how far away is it from humans? Like, I'm not sure. They have. It's only really just new. It came out three yeah. days ago. Um, they published a paper on it. Um, and already there are there are scientists out there starting to go. Oh, it's never going to happen. You know, it's there's there's too many variables involved. But you know, if you can get it to happen in rats, usually further down the line, it'll start happening in humans. Yeah, I suppose it's just whether you'd want a chip implanted in your brain and. Um, whether you'd want that to be happening to you. Well, well, that's it. And who are, who you'd want to be getting signals from? You know, I'd, I'd like to know who my chip is is wired to. You know, someone over in Poland, something, and I start doing dancing or something. I'm like, well, what's going on here? Well, that's true. And you know, maybe people would start putting on those uh, alfoil hats to start blocking the signals from other people, so you can't get in. Um, yeah. I mean, it'll, it'll take a whole new level to cheating in exams. You know, you could have someone sitting with the textbook sending you these messages telepathically to get the right answers. Or you could have your spouse implanted with your other chips so when you think, oh, we've run out of milk, they'll know and they can go and buy it without you having to text them. It's that whole thought process, the thought <laughs> message. Didn't you get my thought message? Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. We just went on the same wavelength today. It didn't happen. Yeah, that's it. You know, there was stormy weather, so the connection wasn't yeah. very good. Now, my only question, other question is, the, the rats, you said there's one that's an encoder, encoder. and one that's a decoder, yeah. so they haven't been able to go backwards and forwards yet? No, they haven't. It's okay. just, just been one way. Um, yeah. And that's where they reckon some of the science falls apart a little bit, because the decoder rat has been trained to respond to the signal. So it's not a direct, oh, okay, this is a signal I'm getting, I'm going to flick this switch. It's just a, I'm getting signal, I'm going to hit a switch. Right, so yeah. it, could, it could just be a, a Pavlovian type response, yeah, um, as we yeah. see in real life. Yeah. Okay, but it, it's one step close to that that mind melding, yeah, that we see. Really, really crazy. What are the practical applications for it? Like, really. They, they haven't listened any, and that's the wonderful thing about science. We often quite do, do things that we go, oh yeah, that'll be fun to do. You know, add to the knowledge bank. And, okay, now what with it? Hmm, let's try it on humans. <laughs> I suppose one application could be for um, quadriplegics, paraplegics, or people in comas um, to help communicate, uh, even though they might not be able to move their body. Because you know, now a lot of uh, stuff is either communicated through small movements in the face or wherever they can move. Um, there is actually, you know, mind technology out there that can control a, um, a, a wheelchair. Um, who did it? The Top Gear um, 
the the boring one. Um, who, James. James. James May, who I actually like the best, but the easiest way to describe him is the boring one. Um, he, he did it on one of his shows. He controlled a wheelchair um, using his mind, moving it backwards and forwards and side to side. But, of course, that was sensing it outside the brain using electrical signals there rather than actually inside the brain, which would be crazy. And I guess we already have the technology to control artificial limbs that implant in the brain so you can send messages to artificial limbs for... for um, yeah. Amputees. Amputees, Amputees. thank you. <laughs> yeah, my, miming that doesn't work so well on radio. Yeah, that's it. Well, that, I knew they couldn't see what I was doing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so some amazing stuff going on with our brain um, and certainly working with rats. And Jess, you've got another breakthrough this weekend that happened with uh, rodent brains. Yeah, um, so personally I'm quite interested or sort of in Alzheimer's and I suppose it's, it's because it's quite a scary disease. Um, to be a scientist and to be learning about science, the decline of that intellectual acuity that happens later in life is quite, is quite scary and I just like to, I love to sort of learn about the most recent developments and this week um, they've uh, genetically altered uh, some mice to... Uh, modify or to exhibit the early stages of Alzheimer's disease and this is hoped to help scientists identify new therapies to provide relief to patients who are beginning to experience the symptoms of Alzheimer's. So uh, they modified these genes and inserted them into the rats that uh, now produce gene fragments of, um, to control the production of a small peptide. So accumulations of this peptide in Alzheimer's patients uh, cause plaques which is responsible for the early progression of Alzheimer's disease, and it seems to trigger these early memory problems. So they can control this expression of these peptides using antibiotics, and they can turn them on and off uh, to regulate the amount that they've actually produced in the brain. And then, yeah, so these are hoped to develop models to test future drugs and therapies that will uh, hopefully help early-onset Alzheimer's patients. Yeah, fantastic. It's... Sometimes it's really difficult, I suppose, working with lab animals because they're not the same as humans, but the fact that we can start replicating this mm, happening well in their brains. Well, that's it. Any sort of clinical trial that needs to be developed would probably progress through an animal model first mm. before they progress onto humans. So it's, uh, it's quite an interesting uh, topic to be working on yeah. and hopefully with some great benefits. Yeah. And now these plaques that are forming in the brain, are they actually physical things? Or? Yeah, they're physical yeah. things. So this peptide accumulates and forms lesions, which is what they call plaques, and you can see them under the microscope of brain uh, tissue wow. of Alzheimer's patients. And they actually uh, inhibit the synapses, which is what causes these uh, memory problems that they have. Yeah, so it's physical blockage it is, rather than yep. chemical. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there you go. Awesome. Well, some fantastic new research coming out there um, looking at human health, uh, and I think that's one of the biggest focuses on science is trying to make you know humans healthier, um, fitter, living longer, and uh, some other health research coming out this week, Phoebe, Yes. Uh, for females. Yes, um, research being done at Curtin University um, has suggested there's a link between breastfeeding and ovarian cancer and they did a trial in uh, China and they had about a thousand patients half of whom had ovarian cancer and half of them didn't and um, they've found a link between breastfeeding and reducing uh, ovarian cancer and so they're saying that in order to reduce your um, ovarian cancer risk by 50% if you breastfeed for 20 months that will actually reduce your ovarian cancer risk and that's because uh, the the breastfeeding actually um, stops you from ovulating, and so then there's less mutations happening in the in the ovaries, and so then it actually reduces your chance of developing uh, breast cancer, so oh, ovarian cancer. Sorry. Yeah. So it's an interesting link. You hear lots of um, things about breastfeeding being good for the child and improving mm. IQ and all of that, but I think it's interesting to hear that there's actually other than bonding there's actual benefits for the mum as well and I think uh yes it doesn't have to be 20 months I was discussing this with my mother this morning who was quite stressed about (laughs) breastfeeding for 20 months in a row but it's cumulative so if you've 20 months can be spread over a few children so you could Ah, have two kids and breastfeed both for 10 months and it will work the same so do you have to plan how many kids you're having it might be be (laughs) i'm gonna have to feed this kid for 20 months well they say 12 12 months you will get a benefit but 20 is ideal okay what is the recommended time for breastfeeding kids do you know um i think 
about 12 months is yeah. recommended, but no, it's not my area of expertise. Yeah, n- nor mine, to be honest. Um, <laughs> I think they just leave it up to the individual, and that's why you get those those talk shows of, I'm still bre- breastfeeding my seven-year-old, and you're just like, oh, well, you know, well, no, no ovarian cancer there for that mum. That's true. You know? Well, d- yeah. Definitely. Um, just psychological issues for the child. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> But really interesting stuff. Um, I suppose it's, yeah, good to get more research out there that does show the benefits of breastfeeding for mother and child. Mm. Especially seeing that we're dealing with a lot of um, hate towards breastfeeding mums in in public and in cafes and that where you see them quite often get asked to cover up or can you not do that here? And you're just like, well, come on. I'm reducing my ovarian cancer risk. Thank you very much. That's right. And my child's IQ at the same time. Exactly. So many benefits. Yeah. Yeah. So many benefits indeed. <laughs> so maybe we can use some science to block all those haters out there. And yep. We'll get the science going um, and that'll, that'll just clear it all up. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Make some bumper stickers. What's yeah. happening, guys? Oh, they help as well. Bumper <laughs> stickers are always great. <laughs> Time is 11.53. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 2XX Community Radio. Broderick here with you and joining me in the studio, we've got Jess, Phoebe and Dan. We've been talking about all sorts of science today, and uh, to continue it on, uh, we're going to start talking about robots, just to take a completely different tack from bodies and rats and mice and that sort of thing. Uh, talking about robots and performing human jobs. Um, now, if you guys had a robot, like, what job would you want the robot to perform? What do you reckon? Ironing. Yeah. Ironing. Ooh. Just the manual task of ironing, Yeah. <laughs> Just get Dan. Dan enjoys ironing. I do, I do, I do. But I hate cleaning my room. Well, you can uh, have a room cleaning robot. Then. I will. Yeah. Robot, yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting. Like everyone talks about, you know, robots doing the menial tasks and that sort of thing, and they can do those sorts of things. But new research from the MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, is saying that humans and robots work better together if they can actually swap their roles and and learn from each other, which I find really strange that we're trying to teach robots to learn but the cool thing in some ways i suppose is that this is stuff that we do with humans already like to perform your job better you do uh, role switching and that sort of thing in the office everyone learns everyone else's roles so you can work and uh, it actually improves efficiency with working with the robots and it improves robots confidence and trust of human masters are we trying to build robot self-esteem? Is it worrying yeah, that true. robots have confidence? I'm not sure. I think it's the way their brains operate, like their brains in, in air, com, air, inver- air in quotation marks. Yeah. yeah, that's the sort of thing. Um, that They do actually learn how to do things um, slowly by... by um, by doing stuff and they can they can pick up on things that go wrong um but i mean it's really interesting because a lot of robots are currently used in manual work um with conveyor belts and that sort of thing um but there's the researchers are saying there's a trend of removing the cages around robots now rather than just having them caged off as their own little thing um and integrating them with people doing stuff as well so it's the robot and the person working together um and so for this study what they did uh, was they set up a simple experiment with 36 people uh, coming into a lab and working with a robot arm to drill screws into a board. Now, the actual drilling was simulated, uh, but just like an assembly line, the human uh, placed the screws, the board moved down the line, and then the robot pressed the fasteners in. Um, but the, what they were looking at was the different ways the humans interacted with the robot arm, uh, some people didn't like the robot. They were a bit nervous, uh, which is kind of fair enough. You know, it's a giant arm that's probably pretty powerful. You'd want to stick away. Uh, and so these people preferred to put in all three screws, stand back, and then watch the robot drill after that. But in other cases, people wanted to do it as fast as possible. So the robot drilled as fast as the screws were placed when they allowed that. And uh, by switching uh, job roles, the robot was able to learn more quickly, and the human began to trust the bot more. And so this cross-training program uh, worked better than giving positive or negative rewards to the robot. So, so cross, the, the cross-training here results in better teamwork. It means the human trusts the robot, and the robot can trust, in air quotation marks again, the human. Um, so it's amazing research that's really uh, looking at robots in a whole different way. So isn't it starting to treat them more like humans um, and 
more, um, you know, making them more useful as we, we treat them like humans. So how how are they learning? Because my my image of you know um, a conveyor belt, a construction line of, of robot arms is just um, you know a repeated task over and over. But do these have eyes or ears or some way that they can interact with the humans so they can watch what's happening? Or? I'm I'm not sure to be honest. Um, I haven't got uh, the those details in the the press release here, but there must be some sort of sensor, I suppose, to so they can uh, so they can interact and see what's going on. Yeah, but no, I actually don't know. Okay, I, I can just see this iRobot with Will Smith happening all over again where these robots <laughs> just go, nah, stuff you, and start taking over and he has to fight them, fight them to the end, you know. So other than a conveyor belt type situation, do they explain any other uses that this could be uh, employed in? Uh, not in here, no. Um, but, I mean, oh, sorry, I take that back. They're looking at um, robots that can be helpers um in various ways um so i mean there's you know simple lifting and drilling and that sort of thing but other helping in in basic human tasks um there's the possibility that by learning um who can you know learn commands and perform them um they'll be able to follow up with that um the human robot interacting does the robot have to get invited to friday night drinks so that it feels included so it feels so i possibly possibly (laughs) um you know, you don't want the robot to feel too left out uh, in this interaction. It's got to be involved. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be really fun to get it drunk. See, what, see, see how a robot reacts when we get it drunk. You know? Definitely. Yeah. Do they become a really handsy robot? Do they become really violent? Or do they just, you know, mellow out and sit in the corner? Or what do they do? I think, judging by the rest of this, you'd probably have to teach the robot again. Teach you know, it how about, to be drunk. Yeah, or no, teach it how to behave when it is drunk. Um, you know, what's the right and wrong behaviours and... and you know, so you'd have to watch yourself too, I guess, and make sure that you perform in the right way. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So that's uh, an interesting robot story uh, coming out of some amazing new technology. Um, but one of the big pieces of technology that's uh, been about now for a little while is 3D printing. Um, and I know at my office, I work at Questacon Technology Learning Centre over there at Deakin, and they've got some 3D printers which do some awesome stuff. They just take a whole reel of plastic and then heat up the plastic and drop spots and make these amazing little um, objects uh, that have all been pre-planned in the computer, pre-designed. You know, they've printed a, a replica automatic transition, uh, automatic transmission um, for a car. They've printed uh, some cogs that can uh, fit together. Uh, the guys have also printed iPhone covers uh, out, and uh, oh, one of my favourite ones was actually when we just moved into the building. Uh, we were struggling. They had a lot of doors um, that needed to be propped open. Um, they had nothing to prop them open, so what did they do? They went onto the 3D printer and printed some door stops. Um, you know, it takes about two to three hours per door stop, so it probably would have been cheaper to go down to Bunnings or somewhere, but still <laughs> solved the problem within the office by printing with this amazing plastic 3D printer. Uh, but it's not just plastic we can print with. And Jess, you've got a really interesting story for human printing. Yeah. So some researchers at Cornell University, uh, bioengineers and physicians, have created this artificial ear using a 3D printing, uh, which forms this injectable mould. Uh, so these uh, researchers have yeah used this 3D printer to create uh, a collagen-based mould, which was then infused with cartilage from uh, cells. And, uh, yeah, have developed this 3D uh, printed ear, essentially. Wow. So it's like like real human tissue that they're printing out. No, what they've no. used is collagen from rats right. to create a mould. And then ah. from this mould, they've uh, projected some cells. These were uh, cartilage cells from cows yep. that have gone over the top of this mould. And then they let them grow, they incubate them. And then what you're left with is an actual ear or yeah. the cartilage of an ear. Fantastic. And it doesn't need, like, blood pumping through or anything like that uh, to keep they it alive. What they then did after they had this ear is uh, infuse it onto the backs of some rats to get the blood pumping through it and to make it a viable ear. Uh, so that's like that old school. Yeah, that's that always like the typical science the shot is the mm. mouse with the ear on its back. So they're actually really doing that. Yeah, they did that. Wow. Wow, that'd be weird. I don't know. And... Can they control the shape at all? Do you know? I suppose if they put the mould in a certain shape, they mm. could... So they used a digitised 3D image of a human subject's ear yeah. um, to create this solid ear from the, th- from the 3D printer, yeah. and then this was the scaffold 
which they used to develop this year so that it was an ear-shaped uh, piece of cartilage that they ended up yeah. with at the end of it. Could you have a design ear? If you weren't happy with the ears that you had, could you could you reshape them? I'm sure you could. Well, you see, that's when I was little, my mum actually thought I had very sticky-outy ears, and so she used to sticky-tape them to the back of my head so that they would fake them down. <laughs> and uh, my dad, when I told him about this story, he said that, oh, you were born 23 years too early. If we finally you were born 23 years later, we could have 3D printed you an ear that didn't stick out. <laughs> How could you explain it to kids at school? Sorry, I won't be here for the next six weeks. I'm going to get my ears replaced. My parents don't like my ears. <laughs> oh, that's so sad. <laughs> Quite strange, too. Yeah, <laughs> replacing ears. Anyway, from ears on the back of uh, rats, though, to eyes on tadpoles. Yeah. Is that right? We were talking about this earlier, and it just seemed too weird, Dan. So you're going to have to fill me in about why they're putting random eyes on tadpoles. Well... All, all animals that have eyes, their, their makeup is their eyes connected directly to their brain. And so there's a very short path there. And, and these scientists are wondering what would happen if the eyes weren't connected to the brain. Would they still work? So what they did was they took some tadpoles, um, trained them to recognize a certain color light. So it was between blue and red light. And what they did was they um, administered a mild shock when they were in the red light to make the, the tadpoles prefer the blue light. Um, then they removed the tadpole's eyes and inserted some um, some eye stem cells into their tail to regrow the eyes at the other end of the body, which then you know grafted onto the the spinal cord right down the end to see if the brain would recognise colour if the eyes weren't attached directly to the brain but rather down the other end of the spinal column, and they found that they do. <laughs> so it doesn't matter to the brain where the eyes are located, and it can still pick up the colour difference signal from the eyes even though it's down the other end of the spinal column as compared to being attached to the brain. Does anyone want eyes down the other end of their body though? Well they say they say the research, this is just, you know, starting to scrape the surface of this technology, um, is to do with artificial limbs and to teach the teach the brain to recognise signals from artificial limbs or things that aren't usually in places that they should be. That's really cool. You know, because amputees often get used to having no limb there and if they if they build them a new limb and put it on it takes a lot of a lot of time and energy to retrain the brain to recognize the movement of that hand and they're thinking if they can go down the stem cell research regrow the limb then they can retrain that brain quite quickly i just want to know how quickly you'd have to do tadpole experiments because how long is a tadpole a tadpole before it turns into a frog yeah i I don't know they it just talks about tadpoles so i imagine you know what they've got a couple of weeks before they They must learn very quickly yeah i I tadpoles or I'm trying to think. That was about two or three weeks, I reckon, before they started growing legs okay. um, from a pond. So, yeah, you've got a little while to teach them. You know. yeah. They've only got short lives, so I'm sure they learn faster than humans. Okay. Yeah. So you said that uh, they went between blue and red light and received a shock when they saw the red light. Yeah. Was that used to test... Yeah, so once the once the eyes had regrown, they put them back in a tank and turned on the blue-red light and automatically the, the tadpoles swam towards the blue light to avoid getting shocked again. Oh, um, so I don't know how far that will be able to go in the terms of recognising shapes and, and different things like that, but it's a good place to start with coloured light, yeah. Mm. Oh, really so. cool stuff. Mm. Yeah, really interesting. And yeah, that whole sensing um, limb is such an interesting idea. Um, the fact that if they can improve that for people. Um, I was actually talking about that with someone the other day about um, the phantom limbs um, for amputees and the fact how important it is for them to have that sense. Um, And some amputees, uh, when they get a a prosthetic on, um, some of them still have the phantom limb there and so it works quite well. And then others uh, don't, so they struggle. And then there's kind of that in-between one where some people have it sometimes and don't others. I've actually heard that they they can sometimes slap their leg like you hit the telly when it's not working to try and get the the phantom limb back in your leg um, so they can use their prosthetic, (laughs) which is kind kind of bizarre when you think about it. But, you know, it's it's... An odd body coping mechanism, I guess, to, to try and cope with a leg when you when you don't have one. It's it's good to not sense it's there, but you know when you do want to pretend you've got one again, you yeah. have to try and sense it's happening. I've just been sitting here thinking about combining all the research so far. So you know, <laughs> yeah. getting rats to grow an ear on their back and actually you know transmit information with each <laughs> other through these artificially printed out ears. Yeah. 
Wow, that would yeah, I yeah, like and that. having I an like ear that. on their tail rather than on their head, you know, where it's or connected. Could it be like a new spy um, piece of equipment? You know, you send in like you know how you send in bugs um, to bug people. You send in the rat and with the ear on its back, <laughs> so it can you. hear what people are saying, and then it transmits it to you, so you can hear what's going on in a room. You, you no longer need periscopes. You could just grow some eyes on the end of your fingers and put your fingers up over the wall or <sighs> around corners. You know, there's a book about that. I'm Is sure there? I read a book when I was a kid, and a girl had a finger on the end of an eye on the end of her finger, and so she could like. Do all sorts of crazy things with it. Yeah, I think that was a Paul Jennings book. Yeah, like <laughs> some of like his it. crazy sort of stuff. Um, or maybe for teachers as well, they could benefit from it. You know, the eyes on, on the back, back of their, their head. head. Yeah, yeah. Oh, they're writing on the board. Yeah, no, I can still see you. I've got the eyes. Yeah. That, that, that would freak students out if you pulled your hair up and there was actually a set of eyes there. Yeah. Uh, look, if there's any teachers listening out there, maybe that's a prank you could play on your, you know, when you get back to school, tell the students about this new technology for the new eyes and then just randomly have eyes on the back of your head that day. That could be the fourth year of your uni degrees. You have to go in and get this surgery done to, to regrow eyes on the back of your head. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. And then, look, then you'd be able to pick a teacher a mile away. Um, or they'd be able to pick you too. Okay. Um, <laughs> anyway, let's move on um, from crazy body parts happening all over the place to uh, some interesting uh, developments in the world of rhinos. Yes, uh, there's um, so the, all the rhinos in Africa are endangered. Uh, last year, the western black rhino was declared extinct and uh, numbers of black and white rhinos have reduced. In fact, the rate they're dying at is increasing because of the black market trade in rhino horn. And so it seems back to front, but the you know people who are concerned about the rhinos are suggesting that we legalise the trade of rhino horn. And instead of having poachers come in and kill the rhino to take the horn, they're suggesting we do shavings of live rhino, rhino horn so that the people doing Chinese medicine can still get the, the horn that they want, but the rhinos aren't being harmed. And they're suggesting if um, poor farmers start farming, as it were, the rhinos, then the rhinos would be given more land, so the rhinos would have a better chance of survival and other savannah am- animals would benefit as well because they'd have more land set aside for them. So um, they said that when they legalised crocodile skin trades, the crocodiles, black uh, the black market stopped trading them because it was too expensive, and so it actually increased the numbers of the, the crocodiles that were in danger. So wow. if we legalise rhino horn trade will we actually increase the numbers of rhinos out there it's an interesting idea for controlling you know levels of endangered species seems uh, very odd my biggest concern would be does a rhino actually feel it if they shave a rhino horn i i think it's just right down near the skin that they can feel it because it's made out of keratin like your fingernails so you can't feel it when you clip off your fingernails unless you hit the quick so um, they grow 0.9 kilos of horn a year, so there's right. always more being created. Yeah. And um, the price on the black market's gone up from you know nearly 5,000 in 1993 to $65,000 a kilo. So Gee. it's more expensive than gold now. And wow. so <laughs> if we can legalise it and drop the price legally, then the yeah. black market will be out of business and maybe the rhinos will have a chance. Yeah. So the rhino horn, that's not, it's not a, a valuable thing in its entirety? It's more the shavings. I think they just use it for the shavings. So a lot of, perhaps aesthetically, they want to have the whole horn, but I saw a show once and people were going out and trapping wild rhinos and cutting the horn off so that poachers wouldn't take those animals because there was nothing to take. Um, But rather than, you know, taking the whole horn off the rhino and just putting it in some, you know, police department or something so no one can sell it on the black market, why not legalise it and... I don't know, try and help them out. I can just see this going terribly wrong because a rhino's not an easy thing to catch and to convince to let you scrape its horn. So it'll just turn into like battery hen houses. There'll just be these rooms full of cages full of rhinos with their heads stuck in a, a lock just, you know, so they can shave a bit off every time they grow But some. if there's only 5,000 black rhino left in the whole of Africa, maybe increasing numbers because people want money is a good thing rather than killing them all off and... It's a bit of a finite resource using a, a rhino's horn. I suppose with the, the cost that they, the rhino horn is at at the moment, the, if it is quite difficult to catch them um, and you know, difficult to scrape a bit of horn off, if it's still difficult but possible, 
then maybe the high price for the rhino horn can still justify that that effort that goes into it and so it might be still be able to be done even within you know a contained um park area rather than, you know like free range hens rather than battery chickens um <laughs> free range yeah. rhinos but yeah because i would hate to see a, a battery rhino um mm. stuck in a cage that would be horrible um, but if it's free range i wonder if they've maybe. thought about teaching the poachers about the technology about regrowing limbs and teaching them how to grow <laughs> rhino horns and petri dishes oh well maybe you should suggest it you know because if we if we can do it with limbs surely we can do it with horns maybe we can 3d print it 3d print rhino <laughs> yeah. horns yeah. that would definitely drop the price <laughs> i feel like the the science behind the use of rhino horn in the first place isn't overly uh concrete yes the um and the article said, despite trying to educate the the users of Chinese medicine about its, you know, whether or not it works or not, didn't didn't help. Yeah. So, yeah. if they want it, and they're, they're going to get, get it anyway, yeah. rather than having these rhinos mutilated, we might as might as well sell it legally and try and help the poor things out. <laughs> Definitely. Seems a bit yeah. backwards, though, doesn't it? It does, but I suppose it's um, one step uh, forwards, maybe. If we can, if we can get that happening, rather than just having rhinos shot uh, just for cutting off their horn, mm. it's pretty horrible. I wonder if they've done research into looking at the life, the growth of crocodiles as compared to rhinos. Do they develop in the same speed? You know, because crocodiles, I imagine, would develop a lot quicker than rhinos. Probably. And so, you know, if you go, okay, it's open season on rhinos now. You can cull off population 5,000 quite quickly. But it's not saying kill the rhinos. They're just saying shave them. Or if you find a dead rhino, you're welcome to that horn. <laughs> oh, look, it's dead. Yes, it does have a gunshot wound in its head, but it is dead. I found it like this. Yeah. I suppose that's the thing. If you do legalise a trade like that, suddenly you can have regulators and that sort of thing coming in to hopefully stop that sort of thing. Whereas when it's all on the black market, it's all very hidden and... Yeah, and they, they were suggesting it might be beneficial to the farmers or the impoverished farmers who aren't having any success with crops that yeah. they can then just let the animals run, run wild and still get a you know, a bit of financial benefit from being nice to the wildlife. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 2XX Community Radio and Broderick here in the studio with me is also Dan, Phoebe and Jess We've been talking about science all morning, and we've got a little bit more to finish off before 12.30. But before we get into my next story, I wanted to ask you guys, how many senses do we have as humans? Well, we meant to have five, but that's the wrong answer by the look on your face. <laughs> yeah, I know. This is a bit like a QI setup here. You know, I should have my buzzers going off. Okay. Did you say five? I go... Right. Um, not quite five. Um, there's no official number. Scientists think it's between around 8 and 23. It's um, a bit of a difference. <laughs> it, it is, it is a little. It's true, we do have the five senses that we learn about in primary school, and they're really the main ones, you know, touch, taste, smell, hearing, and sight. Um, and we've been talking a lot about some of those senses today. But there's other senses that aren't so obvious, but they really are senses, we were talking about phantom limbs before, and there's actually the sense of proprioception, which is the, the knowledge of where your body is around you and the fact, you know, your legs are underneath you. Even though I can't see them through my desk now, I know that one leg is, you know, running from my hip down to the floor. And um, some people who've actually lost their sense of proprioception do some crazy things, like they might be talking to you and their arm just starts raising up above their head. And it's because they haven't actually been looking at it. They don't know where their arm is. And the minute they look at it, their arm slaps back down to their side again um, because they realise how stupid it looks. But um, it's a loss of proprioception. Um, there's also other senses like the thermoception, which is your sense of heat. Uh, or, uh, and it's, no, it's going to escape. Nociception, your sense of pain, um, is also another sense. And there's debate over things like the sense of hunger, sense of thirst, you know, the need to go to the bathroom whether that's a sense too uh, but the other sense i wanted to talk about now is balance is of course the sense of balance is is quite important and you can actually sense how balanced you are around you as a human but cockroaches they don't technically have a sense of balance when they're balancing they're just doing it without using their brains at all uh, instead their bodies actually 
set up right in terms of their architecture of their legs and, and how that's all been put together. Um, some researchers from the University of California, Berkeley, have been performing some experiments on a cockroach and uh, to uncover how they balance, uh, they put a cockroach on a tray that was uh, connected to elastic that stretched and contracted. Uh, so basically, you know, a moving tray. When the tray zoomed to one side, the cockroach was forced to rebalance suddenly. And, you know, it was like if you were walking on a bridge and it suddenly moved 10 metres to one side. You'd kind of stumble a little bit and have to, to rebalance. And uh, using video cameras uh, and a computer to trace where the cockroach stepped, uh, the team was able to analyse the, the step cycle of the cockroach and tell whether its nervous system had kicked in to change it. Uh, a separate experiment actually tested roaches with electrodes attached to their legs to tease out the pattern of their steps. Um, but what they fi- found was that the adjustments came at the end of a step instead of in the middle. So that meant that the nervous system was relying on continuous feedback from the cockroach's surroundings uh, rather than, you know, thinking about um, it immediately. And uh, they're actually going to be using this um, new, te- new research to look at how robots balance um, and how they can, you know, engineer robots to balance without using their brain um, because a robot that can balance without using its brain is a lot more efficient than one that has to be constantly thinking about, am I balanced, what do I need to do, do I have to move my leg, do I have to do this, do that? Um, you know, if it doesn't have to keep track of where its feet are, um, then it's going to be a, a, a lot uh, simpler. Um, you know, it's going to be spending less brain power thinking about its feet and more brain power thinking about what it actually needs to do. Um, because robots are quite bad at keeping balance. It's one of the hardest things that people have done. Um, Asimo, the the robot which is uh, made by Honda, is an amazing little robot. And one of the biggest achievements, um, I think it was a couple years ago now, but one of Asimo's biggest achievements was being able to run, which is a surprisingly difficult thing to do when you think about it, because really running is just controlled falling. Um <laughs> When, well, I mean, walking's controlled falling to a degree, but running, you're actually in the air for you know a microsecond at a time as you pump forwards. And when they finally got Asimo to run, that was pretty amazing. But you know, the amount of thought and, and processing that had to go into that is uh, pretty huge. Uh, so, yeah, so I thought that was really interesting to think that little tiny cockroaches are being used to help robots balance. So does that mean you, you said they're not using their brain? Is that like... They're using their subconscious, or is it? Does just a like cockroach a- have a subconscious? <laughs> this could be a philosophy show. Well, I'm just wondering: does that mean we're going to give robots a subconscious? Maybe we should. Is it more like a reflex thing where it bypasses the brain and just synapses, say, in the spinal cord? If cockroaches have spinal cords, but something along those lines that like we have reflexes that don't actually travel to the brain. From, from what I can see, it's more. Um, yeah. It's, it's more a reflex, um, you know, because looking at uh, robots, they have sensors in their feet, kind of like we do, to tell us where they're stepping, and the sensor sends information to the robot's brain, which then adjusts the feet. Uh, but cockroaches are doing this more efficiently by keeping the brain out of it until they've actually finished stepping. Um, so they just kind of automatically step, automatically move, and then balance after that. Uh, if that kind of makes sense... So would a headless cockroach still be able to balance itself? Oh, headless cockroaches can do amazing things. They can survive for days. That's really creepy. Um, yeah, yeah, headless cockroaches. Um, in fact, what ends up killing them is uh, a starvation. Um, after about 10 or so days, I think it is. Oh, that's they so can survive gross. For that. <laughs> yeah, because researchers yeah. have done, and they've actually injected the nutrients into straight into their stomachs yeah. and kept them alive for, I think it was six months or something, Yeah, without a head. So maybe we're putting too much energy into our brains and we should just all just hang out like cockroaches and do everything automatically. Just chill. Yeah. Just chill. That's right. <laughs> Definitely. So cockroaches, they're being used for robots. Um, but to finish off today, we wanted to talk about a little bit of a story about storage of information um, in a completely novel way. Rather than walking around with hard drives, Dan, we're going to be looking at it a bit differently. Well, I mean, I'm only 27. Um, I'm only 27. (laughs) And I'm just reflecting on my life about the 
the way that we've stored information. I remember, you know, getting the floppy disks, so the, the big the big B drive disks, and going, oh, they you know they can store so much information. And then we got the smaller <laughs> hard ones, which are one point one meg, and you're like, wow. And I remember installing a program, could have been Windows, and I had like twelve disks. And I was like, please insert, insert disk four. Disc, please insert yeah. disk. You know. And then I went to America and saw um, the building that they got Man on the Moon with. And it was, you know, a, a computer that was two stories high and it was storing 512 uh, megabytes. And you're like, wow, that's, you know, yeah. now my phone can store 32 gig, you know, and we've got terabyte hard drives and multiple of them that can fit in the size of our hand. And so I guess humans are always looking for new and um, smaller ways of storing information. And they've actually started looking at how DNA stores information and using that to to help us store our own information. And um, some researchers have been able to use DNA to store some data. And they've, they've stored 750 kilobytes of information. And what they used, and I don't know how they chose this, but they stored all 154 of Shakespeare's sonnets as a text file. They stored Watson and Crick's classic 1953 paper describing DNA as a PDF. They stored a color photograph as a JPEG, and they stored 26-second excerpt from Martin Luther King's 1963 I Have a Dream speech as an MP3. And so what they did was they turned that into information that's stored on DNA through its four base pairs, through its four bases, sorry. Um, they sent that information to a lab that can create DNA. They created it, and then they sent back, um, they say, a, a test tube, which is about the size of your pinky, sent it to another lab, which then analyzed that, and the computer turned that back into those those bits of data which they stored. Wow. That's so ridiculous. how do you get from the, the PDF or the JPEG file to the base pairs? Well, well, what they did was they converted them into bits. They call them trits. Um, they use a triplet code comprising of 0, 1, and 2. And then they translated that code into A, C, T, or, or G, the four, pe- the four bases of DNA. So things like T-A-G-A-T replace the T that begins the two lines of Shakespeare's sonnet 18, Thou art more lovely and more temperate. And then the team also incorporated this into the index of data sort of storing the DNA is like a Dewey Decimal System, so how to find that information within the DNA. Um, And they also created an error correction code so that the DNA, um, when it was replicating, corrected itself if it made a mistake. Wow. So that, yeah, so when it came out and they sent this test tube across across to... um, the people to understand to read it um it the translation from data to dna and then back to data was error free um which i think is quite That's quite in- incredible yeah and they're talking about well you know it's probably not going to be walking down the down the footpath anytime soon with a test tube full of dna to store all our data but what they're suggesting is you know we're all saving our, um, our information at the moment to the cloud whatever that is you know, Google has a cloud and, and, you know, Apple had the sky cloud and all this sort of stuff. They're talking about actually storing the data from the cloud in DNA because they reckon it's, it's good for about 50 years. So what's the potential sort of storage you can... Is it limitless or is there some sort of limit to how much you can store in it? Well, they've only just done this research. So, I mean, a vial of DNA storing 500... Sorry, 750 kilobytes isn't, isn't much. Um but if you think about how much DNA is stored within each cell and what, what sort of information that gives our body, yeah, I imagine that the it's limitless. Wow. What an eclectic mix of things to choose, though. It's sort of like if you were going to a desert island, you could only take three things from your bedroom, what would you take? Do you think they sat around the office and said, if you could only save four files, what would you save? And that's how they ended up with Shakespeare and... And Martin Luther King's speech. How did they pick them? I have no idea. And science seems to do this a lot. When they first invented the CD, they were trying to work out how long to make it last. And they went, well, let's make it so it can hold the whole of Beethoven's Eighth Symphony. And that's why our CDs are 800 meg. Because they went, what are we going to make it hold? We'll make it hold Beethoven's Eighth Symphony, which is 27 minutes or something. So it's just, you know, I don't know whether they're sitting around coffee going, I really like Shakespeare, I want to see if we can transfer that or something. It's got to be a personal joke with the people Mm. in the lab that come up with these things. I suppose it's like an ultimate English text, isn't it? I suppose you could have put more and and pieces in an English text, is it? Um, But you could have put a a giant novel like Dickens' Great Expectations or something like that, but Shakespeare's just very... 
And I really tried to find out what the photograph was of, but I couldn't find it anywhere. I just wonder if it's, you know, all, all the, the lab techs in yeah, a, you know, it's a selfie, party. star yeah. Christmas party or something. You know. it, it was no, an Instagram of them creating the DNA, I think. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah. That's it, you know. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, actually, I've just found online that um, supposedly you can store about uh, 700 terabytes of information in a single gram of DNA. What? Wow. Yeah. Wow. So that's pretty huge. When you think like one terabyte is about your average portable hard drive now, which is a thousand gigabyte, um, or um, what is it, one million megabytes, which is basically a million floppy disks. Uh, when you think about it, so 700 terabytes would be 700 million floppy disks. If my maths is right on the fly here. Yeah. That's a lot of floppy disks. That's a whole lot of uh, pirated TV shows (laughs) on your DNA. Indeed, we get this fantastic technology just so we can watch more pirated TV shows. (laughs) Well, it's about time to come to an end this week for Fuzzy Logic, so we should probably wrap it up. Um, Before I do, I just wanted to make mention of our Facebook page again. If you're a fan of Fuzzy Logic, find us on Facebook and like us there. Um, I've actually just posted a link to some uh, National Science Week grant money that's happening in the ACT. So if you're a scientist or a science communicator who wants to get out there and uh, do something for National Science Week, then have a look at the grants. They close on March 22. Uh, so get in there. But there's some cedar money. I think it's about uh, one to uh, 500 to $3,000 per grant. And there's just over $10,000 available. So get in there if you're keen. Uh, but you can also like us as well, um, and to find out more about what's happening on Fuzzy Logic every week. Uh, thanks very much for joining me today, guys. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. Thanks, Phoebe. Thanks for having me. Uh, thank you, Jess. Thank you. I hope you two had fun for your first time. We certainly did. <laughs> if you enjoyed today's show, it will be podcast. You can find us on iTunes. Just type in Fuzzy Logic. But for now, uh, we should say farewell, and we'll see you again next week on a Sunday for more science fun here on Fuzzy Logic.